to the restaurants we've loved. Today's guest is our friend Leigh Shishak, best known for her bakery Sugar Blossom Bake Shop in San Clemente, California, and is also the author of four cookbooks published by Skyhorse Publishing, and we're going to talk about all of it. But first... So I thought we could check in on our life kind of in quasi-quarantine now, what we were doing, how we were living, restaurateurs without a workplace. Yes. Well, we've been watching a lot of television, haven't we? And I have to say, so the show that we've been binging is Shit's Creek, which I've known and heard it was great for a long time, but I finally, we had the time to sit down. And uh, for those of you who haven't watched it, it's about a, well, it's about a lot of things, but this family moves into this terrible motel and over time they start, um, you know, making it better. And it's like giving me all of the, like tri- it's triggering me. It's like I want to go in and redesign the room, and I want to. Yeah, you know, I did notice hit, that the uh, arc was they basically all start new businesses. Shit's Creek is to Arrested Development what Canada is to the United States. It's kind of a <laughs> that's good. You know, less less bombastic, smaller, cuter. You know, but it's not not as good as Arrested Development, right? It's pretty good. I love it. And the girl uh, who plays the daughter, um, and her name is escaping me now, Annie something. She's hilarious. I love her. Uh, she's. I live to watch her. <laughs> yeah, I think the women are really good. I've been a bit distracted by some of the performances, but it is a fun show. So we've been watching that. We've turned back on. So for years, we got those. Well, not for years, but we used to get the meal box deliveries, Blue right. Apron and stuff, and we right. hadn't been doing that. We started doing it again. I'm always struck by, you know, they really can't afford the proteins. So it's it's yeah. kind of a weird thing. It's just they're attempting to stretch all these proteins with carbs. I, I think the recipes are great, but it's just the economics of it don't seem to work really well. well so I, don't I don't know. think that you're supposed to eat like eight ounces of meat every time you sit down. I think it's the right portioning. It's good. It's not it's not the quantity, it's the quality. I mean, you can take a piece of frozen fish and wrap it in butcher paper and it still was frozen fish. I just don't believe. And and the cuts of meat they use, they're trying. It's just, it's a hard business model. You know, they're basically selling, you know, these pre-prepared groceries and they can't charge a lot more than the grocery store does, but they have to cut it and package it and stuff. Right. Well, there might not be any meat left for you to buy in a while, but the good news for them is that, I mean, those businesses were like in the gutter before all yeah. of this and they're all having a major comeback right now because we're all cooking at home. Well, you're yeah, cooking so- at home. <laughs> So watching TV, cooking at home, homeschool, right? Homeschool. And I bought for the first time in like five years, I bought a hard copy book. (laughs) (laughs) Like I run, I run all the time and I love to listen to my audio books or my podcasts while I'm running, but I haven't sat down and read a 
a hard copy book in forever. And it has been one of the most exciting parts of my day every day. So I feel like we're, we're all rolling back to this very analog way of life. And to be honest, I kind of like it. When I was in my 20s, I lived in the Richmond district in San Francisco. And almost every Sunday, I would walk to Green Apple Books. And I would buy three or four books. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I eventually I would read them. I, I haven't read a book. I mean, I've listened to books, but I haven't read a book in so long. So we've, we've been eating at home. We've been exercising at home. We've been uh, schooling at home. We've been podcasting at home. We've been podcasting at home. Uh, people And, oh, oh, and we got our dog neutered during all of this, which was super awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Winston. It was an interesting lesson in the things we worry about, though, right? Mm-hmm. So even the vet was like, oh, you guys are effed. You've got this high-energy dog. You're stuck at home. He can't. The dog can't go to daycare. He can't go anywhere. And he's going to yank his stitches out, bleed all over the floor, and you're going to have to rush him back to the emergency room. And what happened? Yeah, no, they took, well, first of all, let me back up and say that we have a, a Vishla, and for whatever reason, his his little nuggets never came down. So we were like, does he have balls? I mean, what's happening with this? So they're like, they were up in his abdomen. So it was a really big surgery. They had to like cut him in, cut him open and go fish out his testicles, which were like (laughs) way up somewhere. She offered to package them for me. Oh, gross. (laughs) That has been, I, just to be clear, that's not an exaggeration. That was one of the options. That is so disgusting. Anyway, luckily they found both of them, but we were thinking it's not going to change his demeanor much when he gets neutered because his balls are so small. (laughs) He probably doesn't have a ton of testosterone. Well, so we were planning for the worst and it turns out that they removed these things and he is like a different dog now. He's super calm and chill. He's very um, affectionate. He's been like climbing in my lap and He's just the sweetest thing ever. I don't know if it's the drugs or the fact that they they got these, you know, testicles out of him or what, but I'm loving this yeah. dog. No, it's been, <laughs> it's been it's a been very good experience. And, and, and he's been easy to live with and, you know, he's, yeah. Uh, yeah. He hasn't been going for his stitches. He didn't have to wear the cone. Everything we didn't expect happened. Sometimes the things that we worry about don't actually come to pass, right? Oh God, here we go. <laughs> Here we go. It's true. We we never know that, that it's always the things we don't worry about that cause us the most problems. The yes. things that we worry about are, are not. So for Thank everybody you. that's home worrying now, including us, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. So maybe some peace in the unknown. Yes. Thank you, Yoda. <laughs> so would you, Martha Madison, take your daughter to a restaurant now? Right now? No. Right now. No, I wouldn't take Charlie to a restaurant right now for a few reasons, but mainly because I she's six and I know that she's not going to want to wear her mask and she's going to stick her hands in her mouth and she's going to touch everything. And it's much harder to train a six year old not to do those things than, you know, telling a grown up. But also I on on Cinco de Mayo last week or was it two weeks ago, I went to go pick up tacos to take over to our my sister's house and it was wall to wall packed. No one was wearing a mask except the employees. It was like business as usual. And so, you know, you can say here in Texas it's 25% capacity, but there's no like 
capacity police out there. <laughs> it's like monitoring this. And so I just don't trust it yet. I don't trust that everyone is being responsible in how they're opening. Yeah. So I, I thought we could offer as restaurateurs kind of some tips that might help as people mm -hmm. try and make this decision. You know, I, I think that the first thing just in general, and I don't want to sound like Yoda, but I do think we all need to <laughs> let go of dogma, right? So the blue team says, stay home. The red team says, you know, inject yourself with uh, bleach with, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, and so we're or, all, kind or of, it's, it's all a conspiracy. The government's right, so trying to kill you, right? Right. So we're all kind of getting into our dogmatic positions and saying, I believe what everybody else that votes like me believes. Mm -hmm. And that might not help. You know, there we just don't know a lot. It's really evolving. I think that something interesting that I've been trying to read as much about as I can is that it does seem that it doesn't communicate from person to person very well outside. Right. Well, that seems to be the data so far, but I don't know how much they've actually been studying that until now. It is a novel virus and we know very little about it. And that's why we're all stuck at home. But we can't stay at home until there's a vaccine. We just can't do it. I, I just, you know, we're going to have to figure out some way to live with this virus in our lives. Right. Right. And we should all pay attention. My advice is we should all pay attention to when we can sit at a restaurant outside, perhaps. I think that might be the first thing we can do. And I, it's been encouraging to see some cities are trying to make it easier for restaurants to put tables on the sidewalk. Right. Um, and that's encouraging. That might be a step to get us back out and doing some things that are normal. I, I do not have a lot of faith in most restaurants' sanitation skills. And I, I say that as a supporter of the industry, restaurants can be pretty dirty and you know, what we've been worried about in the past is bacteria and other viruses, flu, cold and stuff. You know, if you look, you know, Martha, you come from the bar. Would you, do you think that the current way that bartenders handle glasses and, you know, deal with people's drinks is safe given this kind of killer virus? Well, I, you know, I just don't know that that's even relevant anymore because now the equation has changed, right? If we don't have every surface cleaned, if everything isn't a hundred percent and people are watching you and it's, you know, they're, they're making their own assumptions, then your business will fail. So it's, you know, although we've always believed that these are the things that can cause your business to fail, now everyone gets it, Right. If we're offering advice as to whether you should go out, you're assuming that the restaurants are doing the steps that at least, you know, would be a baseline to keep people safe. And I, I don't think that's a fair assumption. I, no. I really don't. I think that we have to be really careful and we have to know that, listen, if a restaurant is dirty, if, you know, there's a great line in Anthony Bourdain's first book where he says, if the bathrooms are dirty, then the kitchens are dirtier because it's much easier to clean a bathroom. I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a good rule of thumb. If the restaurant's not clean, you really shouldn't assume that they're protecting you from viruses or bacteria for that matter. Right. And I, I would start there. But this is also, again, like we were talking about different ways of processing all the information that we have. Um, I think that some people are going to be very rational and reasonable and really look around and inspect the place and see how people are dressed. If they're wearing a mask, if they're wearing gloves, they're going to, they're going to take all of these data points in and they're going to make their decision as to whether they feel safe enough to stay there with their family. 
Some people are going to throw caution to the wind because they really are sick of being in their house and they want to go out and have drinks and pretend like it was, you know, December 2019. And so if you can go on this journey with me that I was suggesting where we get rid of the dogma and we try and see what, what would be safe, what would you be looking for? Well, for me, the first thing I'd be looking for is, is the staff in masks, are they, you know, taking this seriously? That's my first visual clue, right? Are they at least taking it seriously enough that everyone in here that works here is wearing a mask? Yes. Then I'm going to be looking for, you know, sanitation stations. Are there going to be hand sanitizers in enough places that we get that the people who run this place know it's important for us to wash our hands? Yes. Then maybe I will go to the bathroom and make sure that they have soap and, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, paper towels and things like that. Um, I'm going to be looking at tables. Are they too close together? Are there too many people in the restaurant in general to begin with? I mean, just the very simple visual cues that you'll see the minute you walk into a place, I think will tell you whether it's a, you know, they're taking it seriously or not. There is no restaurant that you're going to walk into before there is a a vaccine readily available that you're going to feel 100% safe in, but you can make your best assumptions. We just decided that we're going to spend the month of July in Utah with some of our family, um, kind of all quarantined together, but just in Utah. And I got so excited about our road trip there because there's like one night we can spend the night somewhere on the way there. And I, I like looking for the nicest hotel in Santa Fe. <laughs> I'm just like so I am so yeah. feeling it, too. Everyone is feeling this quarantine fatigue. I cannot wait to get out of here. We have to finish this conversation about the hotels. I, I'm that it still freaks me out. I just seems so hard to clean a hotel room from all the I mean, it you know, restaurants are problematic, but there's just so much going on in, in a hotel room. Well, in a hotel room, though, I mean, they say that the virus can only live on surfaces for a couple of days, and we know that most people aren't traveling right now, so there's a pretty good chance no one's going to have been in the room we're going to be in for a while. So that's but, that's the assumption, is that the room well, will have been empty for two days before? I don't think it's a, a, a horrible assumption to make, but I also would say to you that we were in a hotel in New York City when all of this went down, and you know, we went out, we bought some Clorox wipes and we got hand sanitizer and we really wiped everything down. And, you know, that's that's all we can do. We can't not stay in a hotel on an 18 hour road trip. So. And these are this. Well, yeah, but I mean, this is what you know, this is what I think about almost all the time. I look around at the world and it's like, how can this adjust? How can this work? And, you know, just being able to take a trip, you know, we're not flying, we're driving you know, we're going to have to stay in a hotel. And, you know, the agreement that we have with everybody we're taking this trip with is that nobody's going to do anything outside of their house for two weeks before. This is this is the new normal, I guess. It's just, uh, uh, it, it's hard. It's hard to imagine how this affects economic activity and, you know, in any positive way. It's just, no, it's but just on, a lot of No, but on the upside, news. we're taking a trip in six weeks. So there you go. I am really excited, and I'm excited to get out of Dallas for the summertime. I'm excited to mountain bike. I'm excited to, uh, we're going to have a swimming pool for Charlie. It's going to. Maybe, maybe. They what? drained it for now, so oh. they, they're hoping to have it back in. in Do you think we could just not in... tell her? I'm not going to tell her. <laughs> oh, no. Well, they're not going <laughs> to fill it up. 
they're not going to fill it up by the time we get there if it's empty now. Well, I talked to the guy who owns it this morning, and he said they were hopeful that oh. it would be back in working order by July. Let's help. Let's, Let's help. help. Yeah. That's uh, all we can do. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Yay for hope. Well, This to my husband who always says, Martha, hope is not a plan. <sighs> now we're all living just with hope, right? Yeah, I'm trying to think of how to how to uh, incorporate that into what I'm thinking now. I, I think that <laughs> it's hard for, it's hard for Yoda to ingest hope. There is no plan. I mean, we don't have a plan for opening our restaurant no, here. The, we the don't know plan, how to do it yet. Right. Uh, the plan is hope. Is hope. Right. So right, <laughs> yes. it, it, we, we are, we are, yes, we're not using my rule, but we are hoping that things will change in a way that we can see a path to open a full service restaurant that is safe for people to work in and people to dine in that that can be successful but right now we don't see that path right right now the the lesson for you my darling husband is to accept that hope sometimes is all you have lovely While We Were Waiting is brought to you by One House Hospitality Recruiters, a full-service hospitality recruitment firm serving all of North America. For more information, check out our website at one-house.com. That's O-N-E-H-A-U-S.com. Speaking of One House, uh, we have actually a juicy new client with a juicy new listing. If you are a general manager looking for a position with a growing restaurant group and are interested in the DFW area, hit me up. My email is Martha at one, O-N-E dash house, H-A-U-S dot com. All right. Well, I'm really excited to introduce our guest. Her name is Leigh Shishak, and she is a seasoned pastry chef, entrepreneur, and author of four cookbooks, Farm to Table Desserts, Beach House Baking, Beach House Brunch, and her fourth book, Beach House Dinner, drops today and is available on Amazon and Kindle. Welcome to the show, Leigh. Hi, Leigh. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Drops today as we're recording this. It's out on May 12th, correct? Correct. Yes. By the time you're hearing this, you can click on Amazon and go pick it up, Beach House Dinners. Anyway, I'm so excited to have you on the show today, and we're just going to dive right in because there's so much I want to catch up on. Um, But first, I wanted to, to ask, you know, how you even got started cooking. You know, why, why? did you decide to go into the culinary field and and specifically why pastry? So I always enjoyed making desserts with my mother growing up and I had graduated college, moved to New York city. I was working in banking of all industries and I really had gotten bored with that industry and I was fortunate enough to live in a neighborhood where a small bakery was opening up and they were looking for a part-time weekend cake decorator. And I dropped in and gave them my resume and showed them some photos of cakes that I had decorated. And somehow she hired me. I'm not quite sure why, but she hired me. And I started working there on weekends and I just fell in love with it. And I knew that I had to switch careers. And fortunately I had saved enough money in banking where I could quit that job uh, and go upstate to the Culinary Institute of America and study pastry and spent two years doing that and then graduated and moved to Los Angeles and started working in restaurants. 
What was your experience like at CIA? Oh, I loved it. It was uh, my group um, in the pastry program was only about, there was maybe 12 of us in the program. So you can imagine we got a lot of attention from the chef instructors and they were very much hands-on. And it was a really exciting time to be in culinary school at that point. It wasn't the most popular career yet, but it was getting there. And so there was a lot of excitement to be studying culinary at that time. And so then you went to LA. What, what made you decide LA was where you were going to go? Well, I had a really close friend who, while I was in culinary school, had moved from New York City to Los Angeles. And we had kept in touch, and she knew I had just graduated. And she was like, you got to come out and check out L.A. You're going to love it. So I, I flew out, and I hated L.A., actually. So. <laughs> Me too. So, so I left, and I told myself I'm not going back there. And then... You know, I kind of, I moved back in with my parents, actually, and I thought about it, and she kept calling, and she kept saying, oh, you just got to give it some time. It'll grow on you. So I decided to go out to L.A. I drove out, and I crashed on, you know, on her couch, and I started looking for a job. Thankfully, found a job as a pastry cook in Westwood at Napa Valley Grill. I'm not even mm -hmm. sure if it's there anymore. I think it Hopefully is still it is. there. Yeah. Good, good, good. Well, yeah. Who knows today? But right. yeah, who knows today? <laughs> That's true. We don't know if it's open. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I worked there as a pastry cook. And after about a year there, I just, I felt like I could do more. I felt like there wasn't enough opportunity to grow. And... So I think I jumped on Craigslist and I came across a listing for Luna Park looking for a pastry chef. And then I interviewed and... And we got I you. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> and let me just say, from the time at Luna Park that you were there, you developed what would remain our uh, pastry dessert menu and the peanut butter pie that <laughs> you made. I still dream about that today. <laughs> yeah. Aww. I really felt like we were punching above our weight class when we got you. I mean, I knew that you weren't going to, I don't, you probably stayed for about a year, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I knew that it was, you were stopping through, but we were really lucky to have you in your oh, time yeah. there. You, uh, you really improved our dessert program a great deal. Oh, no, I'm, I'm so glad for the opportunity because that's what I was really lacking at Napa Valley Grill is there wasn't any opportunity to come up with my own desserts. Right. And at Luna Park, I was given that opportunity and yeah. I was given a, a good amount of pay, too. That was I was really struggling <laughs> at Napa Valley Grill because I think I started at like seven dollars an hour or something oh like my that. No, I mean, yeah. years ago, it's, it's, it's horrifying when you think about it now. And AJ, you were so kind, you know, to offer a higher pay. And also at some point I asked for health insurance and you gave me health insurance. And that was a really big deal to me. So thank you. Segways very well into a question I have because, you know, desserts are a big part of what brings people to a restaurant. And if you have a good dessert program, I, I you know, you really see it in your sales and Luna Park was always identified with mojitos and the goat cheese fondue and some of the specialty items, but desserts were a big draw. People came for the s'mores and then later the things that you added in restaurants outside of bakeries. Do you think that pastry gets its due? Do people respect, do chefs respect what pastry contributes to the restaurant? 
I've worked with some chefs who get it, and I've also worked with some, some chefs who don't. And um, that's why Luna Park is such a positive memory for me. I was thinking about um, you know my time at Napa Valley Grill and then my time at Luna Park. And then after that, I had moved to the fine dining realm and had moved to Stonehill Tavern. And at Stonehill Tavern, I will say, you know, I hate to say this, but I really, towards the end of my time there, I felt like I wasn't appreciated and that desserts and that the chef felt like any cook could just make the desserts that I was doing. And um, yeah, it was, that was a real struggle. And it was really sad to see that it was, I felt like the industry was kind of going in that direction where, you know, restaurateurs and chefs felt like "Mm, pastry chefs aren't essential. Like it's kind of an afterthought, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that in the industry quite a bit from, I mean, I've worked in a lot of different kinds of restaurants and some, you know, really value their pastry program and understand that that's like a whole second way to market your, your business and to, to really enhance the guest experience and all these great things. And then I've worked in places where they're like, yeah, the sous chef's going to throw together some, you know, cream pie for tomorrow or whatever. Right. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Exactly. But and the then, truth and is, was, yeah, go ahead. It, I was just going to say it, it gets to the point where they're, they're also starting to watch their costs and then they just want to get the frozen dessert from us foods and right. they think that's fine. Right. Yeah, right. I think it's I think it's a horrible mistake. And if you look at Instagram and you know all the food pictures, it's desserts. People take pictures. You know, I don't know. They hold it up in front of the sign, the soft serve, and all the different things. But people are really attracted to dessert. They're beautiful. Uh, they're you don't eat dessert at home nearly as often as you do when you eat out. Martha and I went to Angler in Los Angeles for Valentine's Day. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, for Valentine's Day. And uh, they have soft serve ice cream, which is deceptively simple, but of all the things that we ate there and they were all wonderful, the soft serve ice cream is the thing that I took away and remembered more than anything. Um, and, uh, I think that that's what desserts can contribute. So I think that people make a mistake. I think the reason that chefs don't appreciate desserts as much is because they don't know how to cook them. Right. And, 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 <laughs> and because they're relying on somebody else to do it, they just kind of dismiss it. Everybody wants to come in for my charcuterie plate when in truth, people just want, you know, soft serve ice cream and, uh, right. And or they, they make, they make the calculation. Well, nobody really orders dessert. You know, we only sell like 20%, you know, of our desserts or whatever. And they're, you know, the point is make them better and people right. will order more. <laughs> yes, exactly. And right. it's the last thing that the diner is going to eat there and it's, you know, right. It's going to make a lasting yeah. impression. Exactly. But so that, that's so, why we paid you so much, Leigh, is because uh, <laughs> desserts were such a big part of our, our identity, and, and it was great were. to have somebody that could do it. And we had uh, Jimmy in Northern California that would work part-time, and it worked out really well. It was a, it was a great arrangement. Am I wrong to say that most pastry chefs in the industry are female? Most pastry chefs that I know are female. So I, why I do don't you think that is. <laughs> <laughs> What's that about, Lay? <laughs> Gosh, uh, well, there's I no, for... no dudes that want to cook brownies <laughs> or something. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's a certain. Oh gosh, I don't want to put men down, but I think there's a certain. <laughs> There's a certain finesse or elegance that's mm-hmm. needed with desserts, and I think that's why females tend to be more attracted to it. Um, it also it takes time. Baking actually takes time. You know, there's a 
method to the madness. And then you got to wait for it to bake in the oven. And maybe we're a little more patient. (laughs) (laughs) Of the people in your class when you were in school, you said you were only with about 12 people. How many of them were women? There were, there were three men and then the rest were women. So if there were 12 of us, so nine women, three men. You know, there aren't a lot of women in kitchens and increasingly there are more female chefs and such, but, you know, very often there's, you know, pastry chefs and, and such can be the limit to the, the women in, in kitchens. What's the experience being a female in a mostly male kitchen? Yeah, that's a good question. I had a fairly positive experience up until maybe the last year that I worked in um, at Stonehill Tavern. And I was always very supported. Luna Park was amazing. Uh, Napa Valley Grill was good. And then at Stonehill, I was there for about five years and it was fine. And then it really got bad the last year, actually. I you know, it, in retrospect, talking about this, I can't believe I put up with it, but what there changed? was a lot of, I don't know what changed, but there was a lot of harassment. Um, I got shoved into an elevator once. I got my hair pulled all the time. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I, you know, and it's, it's at that time, oh, I had, you know, um, men's body parts drawn on my car. <laughs> so, <gasps> no. Yeah. So in retrospect, I can't believe I put up with that, but why you know. would somebody do that? I, well, no, I'm saying, I mean, did it ever feel like if somebody's drawing anything on my car, I would feel like somehow there'd been an altercation or something. What, what in the world? You know, I think I, well, I was at that time, I was one of only two women in that kitchen. And um, I just think it became such a male dominated kitchen Yes. And so you went to open your own bakery, right? I did. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, um, I had been wanting to do it for a while, and it really just came down to finding the right space. And so I had to be patient. And I found a space. um, It was less than 1,000 square feet, and it was in San Clemente. California, a little beach town, and they didn't have a bakery at all in town, and they hadn't had one for quite a, quite a while. So there was definitely, you know, a space that needed to be filled. So I believe, AJ, you helped me with the lease, or at least you got me in touch with your attorney who helped me Aww. with reviewing the lease. And uh, I remember that, yes. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, and I, I opened it, and um, that was 10 years ago. Was it everything you thought it was going to be? It was everything and more. I, I know that a lot of people had told me you are going to be working so hard, but I had never imagined I'd be working that hard. And, and I really, it was a lot of work. <laughs> but, I, but I will say I would not have changed a thing about it. I, I really love the operations side of it and um, the costing and trying to make, you know, more profit and what we can do to add new items. I just, I loved it all, really. And what was your specialty? What did you do better than anybody else? So we specialized in cupcakes and cookies, and then we also did uh, celebration cakes. So any kind of custom cake orders we would do. So what made you decide from that point that you were going to start writing cookbooks? That's something, writing cookbooks is something I had wanted to do for a while as well. And, you know, after about a year or two of running Sugar Blossom, 
I thought it was a good chance to approach publishers about um, a cookbook uh, based on the desserts at Sugar Blossom, which is the name of my bakery. I think I sent out 20 letters to agents and I got one yes from a, an agent in, uh, she lives in Del Mar, which is a city, you know, a little south of San Clemente. Mm-hmm. And she just, she got it. She got that whole beach angle. And I wanted to combine my two loves, which is baking with the beach. Okay, it's time to pivot to story time, my favorite part of the show. AJ and Leigh are both going to share their stories about selling their restaurants. Here we go. AJ, you're up. So I'm going to tell the story of selling Luna Park San Francisco, which was the first restaurant that Joe, Jack, and I opened for ourselves back in 2000 and was open for 15 years on Valencia Street in San Francisco. My friend that was the landlord was foreclosed upon because he was nuts, and in order to borrow money, he had to find somebody who was crazier. The new landlord was vindictive, and he suffered from bipolar disorder, and I don't want to make light of that. Uh, He did choose to stop taking his medication, as he would tell me, and that would cause a lot of problems. When Martha was pregnant with Charlie, we needed to move to San Francisco so I wouldn't have to be traveling. And the idea was to kind of evaluate if the restaurant there would be viable. The costs in San Francisco were insane. It really didn't make sense for us to have a restaurant there anymore. But we were going to give it a try. The landlord was not a big part of the equation at that point. But one night, we were at our apartment in San Francisco, and I got a call from the restaurant saying that the landlord was there with a guest, with a homeless man. And he was asking the manager if the homeless guy could sleep in the restaurant that night. So I had to take the call from the landlord and ask what his plans were. And he said, I met this guy and he needs a place to sleep and I want him to sleep in your restaurant. And I said, this is not possible. There's liquor. There's all sorts of reasons. And he shouted some profanities into the phone and said, blah, blah, you and hung up. And I said, oh, no. So now we have a restaurant that's really not making money. That's about 350 miles away from our house. And I'm in a fight with the landlord. So the next kind of negative interaction I had with this guy was when we went to Martha's grandfather's funeral in Virginia. Now, Martha's grandfather was a military doctor who had fought in World War II, and it was a military funeral. And at the time that the band was kind of playing taps, I got a call from the restaurant and I had to take it. And the crazy landlord had sent a construction crew to take our walk-in out. There was no reason for this, and we had to call a lawyer and get it all stopped, and he was just being crazy. I think he just wanted attention, and you know, he had this construction crew that was kind of working for him, and he was just mad at me because I wouldn't let the homeless guy sleep in his restaurant, so he was going to take my building apart. And I decided it's probably time to sell this restaurant. So we put it on the market, and um, we immediately got an offer. Now, when you sell a business that you have a lease, you need to get the landlord to approve because they're essentially taking a new tenant. So you want to get somebody that's qualified. Well, the buyer was qualified. It was Gavin Newsom, who was then the lieutenant governor of California and is now the governor of California. So it was a good tenant. And we brought this to the landlord. And that really all we needed him to do was to sign the paper saying that he consented to the lease transfer and Bob's your uncle, we'd be done with the deal. It wasn't that simple. He took 
Gavin's people all over trying to get them to lease other properties of his and just exposing to them how crazy he was. So I called the landlord. I said, we need to talk. And he said, I'll be in the city later today. We'll get together for coffee or something like that. And he called me and said that he had run out of gas on the Golden Gate Bridge. And could I pick him up? So I drove to the entrance to the Golden Gate Bridge where you can park and kind of pay fines and stuff. And I picked him up and uh, drove him to our meeting. And he was so in his disease, the phone rang at one point through the car speakers and he just started grabbing at the dashboard and like adjusting the air conditioner and stuff because he needed the noise to stop. And I knew that this was gonna be a really hard deal to get closed. And they sent a letter saying, your landlord's crazy. We want out of the deal. Please accept our apologies. It was nice of them to send the letter. But uh, by this time, the, the fact that the restaurant was going to be sold had leaked out to the press. Our business had dropped like 30%. What was supposed to be a pretty easy sale had turned into this complete nightmare. Our sales are down. We have the crazy landlord and no buyer. We find another buyer. We make a deal. And we're done and uh, go up to San Francisco, lock the doors, very sad. First restaurant I've opened, go home, and I think it's over. I learned later on that the people that bought it had tried to start construction, had had a bunch of problems, and then the landlord had been arrested for dealing methamphetamine, <laughs> and he was in jail. And the building had gone into some sort of receivership or some sort of probate and they had to stop construction. And it is now about six years later and the building is still sitting empty. Our sign used to sit there above for years. The Luna Park sign sat on Valencia Street. I loved that. It was still Luna Park, but now the sign's gone. If I could do any business fantasy, I would love to open another restaurant there, but it's just too expensive to do business in San Francisco. And, you know, I guess it's still the same landlord. So that is the story of Luna Park, San Francisco. I had opened my bakery, Sugar Blossom, in 2010 in San Clemente. And from the very beginning, I was very fortunate that the San Clemente community is fierce about supporting small businesses, especially women-owned businesses. And I was so thankful for the loyalty of the customers uh, over the past 10 years. And it had gotten to the point where Physically, I really needed a break from the bakery. I was wearing compression bands all up and down both hands and arms because I had such bad tendonitis from overworking them over the past decade. And I also wanted to focus more on writing cookbooks. Um, I did get approached by two women who were interested in purchasing the bakery. They were veteran cake designers uh, who actually worked for a competitor bakery in the next town over. We started negotiating the deal in January. It took about a whole month to figure out um, everything. And then end of January comes around and we hear about the first U.S. case. Still 
not thinking it would really affect us by any means. So we approach the landlords in February. We go back and forth the whole month. I have learned that it is not easy to sell a business. Once I approached the landlords with these potential buyers, you know, they were worried about the amount of money in their bank. Um, I had to show them all the P&Ls. We had to forecast P&Ls. You know, just I had to talk to the landlord about these ladies' cake designing expertise. I was saying they were going to be able to attract higher end clientele and bring in new business. And it was, it was a full on month of discussions. At the end of February, I was really having concerns as to whether this was even going to happen if the landlord was going to approve them. But then on top of that, you know, the first death in the U.S. occurred due to the virus. And then California cases of the virus were also happening. we thankfully do enter escrow and I'm feeling pretty good that this is going to happen. But then, you know, cases are increasing. And then it was mid-March when I think President Trump declared a national emergency. And I immediately was like, oh my gosh, are the buyers going to back out? And, you know, the broker was like, yeah, of course they can. But, you know, very unlikely as lease has been signed, security deposits been paid and so on and so forth. And then, and then the lockdown happened on March 19th. I wanted to stay open. Um, I felt like it was important to stay open, um, but it was really scary. I had like a light trickle of customers that people didn't know what to do. They were like, can we come in? You know, do we just call in orders? And then people were canceling orders for the weekend, obviously, because they couldn't have parties now. It was the first time I really felt like my business was failing. The new owners, you know, even at that point, they took over, even in mid-March, they took over um, social media accounts and they were on it. They were building up momentum. They're incredible social media marketers. The last five days of business, I did a quarter of what I had done the whole previous year on DoorDash. So they had really, really picked up and that was an eye-opener. We did deliveries, you know, doorstep deliveries. We would just leave it at the doorstep and text them when we dropped it off. I believe that I sold it to the right people. I know that they are driven and they're ambitious and they love the brand as much as I do. They're super talented. So, you know, to me, selling the bakery, it was more important not to just sell it. I actually wanted to sell it to people who are actually going to feel emotionally attached to it and, and grow it in ways that I couldn't do that. Well, thank you for tuning in to While We Were Waiting. And thank you to our guest, Leigh Shishak. You can find her brand new cookbook, Beach House Dinners, and all of her cookbooks on Amazon and Kindle. And you can find out more about her on her website, leighshishak.com. That's spelled L-E-I-S-H-I-S-H-A-K.com. You can find us at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com and also on social at Waiting Podcast. And listen, if you're like me and you want some visuals to kind of take you through all the stuff we talked about today, you can do that on our website. There's a little icon that says episode pictures. Click on that and you'll see all the beautiful pictures. 
Please like, share, and subscribe where all of the podcasts are found. And if you liked uh, to share your stories with us, we want to hear from you. Just shoot us an email at stories at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com. Until we meet again, stay home, stay healthy, please stay sane, and take care of yourself. See you next week, everyone. Once I rose above the noise and confusion Just to get a glimpse beyond this illusion I was soaring ever higher But I flew too high Though my eyes could see us still